0: Holy War. When I use the term holy war, I'm certain that many of you, your hearts and your minds go different places with that phrase. Some of you, no doubt, being uh, familiar with history, and maybe students of history, like myself, your mind goes back to the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, where holy wars, literal wars, physical wars were fought for possession of Europe where the Muslim empires had come up through Spain and were seeking to rule Europe and the church forced them out and pressed them back into the Middle East. Some of your minds go there and to that kind of a holy war. Others are more contemporary much, much more contemporary and when I use the term holy war you think about the jihadist of our own day who straps a bomb to himself and blows people up for his God in hatred of western civilization and striking back against Christianity they seek mass destruction a normal reaction to the term by most civilized people in our day is that this term is barbaric unsophisticated and I wager that almost all of us Almost everybody here is already hoping the live stream has shut down and that's not on the internet. Because it makes you nervous to be associated with something called holy war. But what you must come to grips with, according to our passage and many others, is that every Christian in this room is engaged in the holiest of wars. And the gravest mistake you make every day is you wake up thinking, Peace. Peace. Look around, everything's at peace. We Christians are in a war every day of our lives from the moment we are made regenerate in Jesus Christ through the power of His Spirit until we draw our last breath. One of the tactics used against us in this war is that the enemy tries to convince us that we're not really at war. Some of the saddest pictures from the Middle East to me during our days, beginning back in 2001 and forward, are pictures of places In Afghanistan and Iraq, where war has been waged for year after year after year, and the people now live as if there is no war. They just kind of casually go through the streets, and the kids play soccer next to minefields of IEDs that could instantly take their life. And they just, it's just life, it's not real. It's not real until one of them runs into that minefield and steps on one of those explosive devices and is blown to pieces. And then it's real. But you see, every day when we wake up as Christians, we're tempted by our enemy to act just like those kids. To get as close to the minefield as possible and even to walk in it because we're silly and we're entertained and we're sick because we've been drinking the putrid water of this world, acting like it doesn't matter because we're not at war. If you saw kids playing next to a battlefield, I think you would do whatever it takes to convince them that they're playing with mortal danger. Another tactic that the enemy uses against us as Christians is that the enemy deceives us into believing that the pathways of sin are just the way God made me. Some of you flinched when I said that because you used that one this morning when you got angry with your children and you lashed out verbally. And they reminded you that that's not how Christian people act. Because If you don't have an external conscience, you're not raising children. Right? If you have a three, four, five-year-old child in your home and you're doing anything like preaching the gospel to them regularly, when you sin, they will tell you, that's not the gospel. That's what I mean by external conscience. And what you shot back to them was, no, I can't help it. You just got to understand I've always been this way. Because you've believed a lie. That this is just the way God made me. It's like walking into a workshop or into my office, and I have my laptop computer folded nice and neat, and I'm hammering nails into the wall with my laptop. And you would say, What are you doing? That's a laptop. I know. Why are you doing that with it? That's not what it's made for. Well. I've always done this. Yeah, you've always done that because you're dumb. God made hammers. Use a hammer. Don't use a laptop. But see, if I've always used a laptop to hammer my nails in, now I just keep hammering it. And when you tell me that, I think you're ridiculous. This is just how I am. You just got to deal with it. Yet another tactic of the enemy is that he whispers to us, that the power to defeat sin is weak and incapable of defeating the strong man of sin in our life. (laughs) I was talking to Aaron, and and this came out of our discussion earlier, maybe two weeks ago. What if you were driving down the road this morning, and you rode by a road, I mean a house on the road, and as you were approaching it, there was in the front yard, this is the scene, There's a chihuahua, all two and a half pounds of it. And it's just yapping. You know how chihuahuas do? I don't like chihuahuas. If you own a chihuahua, I'm sorry. They just yap and yap and yap and yap, and they literally can get taken down by fleas. Like, they're just minuscule. They're not even dogs. But you drive by, and in this front yard of Chihuahua, and he's just yapping, and you know what he's yapping at? An 80-pound German shepherd. And the 80-pound German shepherd just rolled over on his back laying there. Is that ridiculous? Now you're going to act like, because you know I'm walking you into a trap, so you're going to act like, I don't know what a German shepherd is. You're going to have to be a little more specific. You would think that was ridiculous. And if you parked your car and you went up to the door and you knocked and the owner came out and you said, hey, man, I don't know what's going on out here. He's like, what's wrong? It's just yapping. That German shepherd just laying there. So docile, so sweet. I said, I don't understand. What's the problem? He said, you said to him, the chihuahua is intimidating and bullying and leading the 80-pound German shepherd. What in the world is going on? I it's, said, it's, it's simple. It's always been that way. You see, like, when we got the German Shepherd puppy, the Chihuahua had been here a long time. It was the lead dog. And even as the German Shepherd grew strong and powerful, all the way to its 80 pounds, where it could literally eat in one bite, that chihuahua. He willingly lays down at the chihuahua's feet and just submits himself. Because, see, the chihuahua's been here a long time. And this new dog, it just goes along with the old chihuahua. Your enemy whispers to you, that new man is weak, not strong enough. There's no power in that new man to beat this chihuahua of sin. Another thing, and then I'll stop because I could go on and on. Another thing that might happen in your life is you might keep us, we might be kept in sin because our enemy has convinced us that resistance will cost too much. Just cost too much. In June June the 14th, 1940, Winston Churchill pled with the leader of France to hold his ground against the Nazi army. Just hold your ground because we're coming. Roosevelt's going to declare war. The Americans are coming. The Canadians are coming. The British are coming. We will fight with you. And the French begged for that assurance and because they didn't hear the assurance... Two million citizens of Paris, France just fled before the Germans got there, ran away in fear, just seeded over the country. The triumphant arch had a Nazi flag hanging from it by the end of the day. Why were they running? Because they were convinced it was futile to resist and it would cost too much. Resistance is costly, so I just can't do it. But what you and I have to know is we have to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. That's what Paul just finished saying in 1 through 11. And then finally, Paul is saying in our verses that we must present ourselves to God as weapons of war for righteousness' sake. We have to know the gospel not just factually but passionately in our hearts know the gospel, and we have to reckon, consider, account ourselves dead to sin in Christ and alive to God for righteousness sake, and then We have to present our members to God for weapons of war against the enemy every single day of our lives. Grace Fellowship, for the past three weeks, we have flooded you with the message that you are sanctified in Christ. Paul has been focusing on the reality that we are positionally definitively sanctified in Jesus Christ. I know, I know the struggle when Corey for two weeks stood up and declared boldly that our old nature is dead. I know, I realize that it caused so much inside of you to tremble and to even be angry. When he said that we're sanctified fully, By God as believers. And that currently when we sin. We're giving in to perceptions of the old ways. And the old nature. And that's really the struggle. This is because our daily lives do not match the reality. Of our experience. Of the triumph of God and Jesus Christ over our old nature. And our old sin. When he said these kind of things. It caused many of us to stir myself included I'm right there with you that's hard for me it's hard for me because I know it's true in my head but in my daily experience I struggle and so I'm looking listen to me I didn't say it in the beginning I'm gonna add one more way the enemy deceives you is to tell you you're not sanctified in Jesus Christ you hear what I'm telling you what the enemy wants you to believe is you're not sanctified in Jesus. You're sanctified by what you do and what you don't do. And he will send many millions of happy legalists to hell for eternity because they think they're sanctifying themselves. Meanwhile, Paul said, you are sanctified in Christ. You are dead to your sin. You are alive in him. He declared it. God did so in Christ. I want to agree with Corey. I want to agree with him. And I want to agree with David. And more importantly with Paul, that when he says we are dead to sin and truly alive to Christ, it is so. And the only reason all of us didn't amen is because you got to hear that over and over and believe it every single day and reckon it to be true whether you experience it or not. Christ is your life and your life is now hidden in Him at the right hand of the Father and who you really are will appear with Him when He appears on that day. Paul, Colossians chapter 3, not Corey, not Carlton, not David, Paul, Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy has made you alive with Christ Jesus and seated you in heavenly places. Paul, not Carlton, not Corey, not David. So are you alive? Or are you still dead in your sins? Has God sanctified you? Or have you begun a new life in the Spirit and you will complete it? Listen, by the works of the flesh. Galatians clearly thunders that if you try to complete what God has done with the Spirit, with your flesh, working hard to be approved by God, by the law, you will cancel the work of the Spirit, show it was never true, and you will die in your sin. We, church, have to actually believe the truth Of the 110 proof gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you sing the words to that song this morning? I am set, what? Free. It's either true or it's not true. It's either real or it's not. And if Christ is not raised from the dead. And therefore we raised with him Then we are of all people to be most pitied. Romans 6 is perhaps the most crucial passage for us to know in the area of our already and not yet sanctification. We are by union with Christ already sanctified. This happened the moment that we were regenerated by God. The good news that we must know is that when Christ died, we died with him. When Christ was raised from the dead, we were raised with him from the dead to newness of life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the old man has gone. Behold, the new has come. We are already sanctified because we are joined to Christ in a living union. So much so that right after that in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we therefore don't consider anyone any longer according to the flesh. Yeah, I know you stop memorizing At that earlier verse, didn't you? The new has come. Oh, glory day. That's awesome. But that's not all. We don't any longer consider ourselves or anybody else in the Christ according to their flesh. But according to the spirit. Why? Because that's the reality. That's the truest reality for a Christian is we are in Christ. And nothing I do, or you do, or this world does, or the eternal spirits of the demons and Satan array against you can take you and separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, Romans chapter 8. We are sanctified because we are joined into the vine of Jesus Christ, and therefore the branches will will absolutely produce fruit. And we will know one another. Whether we be good trees or bad trees. By the fruit that we bear. Paul has spent... Romans 1-5 through telling us that we are justified, given right legal standing before God by grace, through faith in Christ alone. He ends chapter 5 by explaining to us that we have been transferred from the representation of Adam into the representation of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. We have definitively and really transferred from the kingdom of Adam into the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Adam is filled with the law. It's filled with sin. It's filled with death. The kingdom of Christ is filled with grace and righteousness and life. And then, having thoroughly explained these great truths of justification through faith alone, we think we're turning the corner to the practical things. Because we're Americans. Because I'm an American. Just tell me what to do now. Paul says, not yet. Pump the brakes. When you know justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you know just enough, just enough to dangerously fall into the error of believing that now that you are in Christ, you alone, by yourself, can make yourself holy. And so Paul doesn't become practical. He stays theological in the beginning of chapter 6, and he declares some more things to us. What does he say? He says we are already sanctified. Already in Christ sanctified. Surely Paul is going to give us some principles, some tips, some things to live a better life, to be more frugal, to be more good and more holy and more moral in our own flesh. So we start reading chapter 6 only to find out that he keeps hammering the work of God which he has done for us in Christ. Romans 6, 1-11 unfolds for us already work, already work of God. The already work of God is uniting us to Christ, which is how we're made holy. Even in the Old Testament, there's no word for holiness that denotes your work. 600 times holiness is used, and it's always used in regard to God and God making things holy. God making things holy. How did the temple become holy? Because God set it apart. For uncommon use, not common use. How did the vessels of the temple become holy? Because God set them apart. How did the priests become holy? Because God set them apart. How did the kings become holy? Because God set them apart. How did the nation of Israel become holy? Because God did what? They didn't set themselves apart. They were slaves to Egypt. And they belonged to Pharaoh's grip. And God raised up a mediator. Named Moses and said, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Set them free. What is the next thing he says? See, we say that part, but then we stop. Why did he set them free? Why did God send Moses there to tell Pharaoh, let my people go? So that they may worship me. So that they may worship me. In the desert. God didn't just set you free for freedom's sake. Christian, Israel, God set you free so you might worship him. And he sent ten mighty, magnificent plagues and he killed the firstborn of the people of Egypt. And he caused the people of Egypt, God caused them, to take the riches of Egypt and lavish them on the saints. Israel, and they walked out. Over 600,000 men, women, children, not counted. They walked out free. Free. But as Cameron said to this week when we were hanging out, what did they do? They just went from Egypt right into the promised land. Nope. They walked out, and they stood at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army came to wage war. And what did they do? Well, they arrayed their their army. They got it all called together, a bunch of slaves that had just been set free. They got their army. They mustered their men. They got their weapons, and they fought Pharaoh, and they won. Some of you are shaking your head. Some of you are like, yeah, that's a great story. Where is that in the Bible? To which I would say, read the Bible more. No. They cried out, what have you done? You brought us out here to die. Moses prayed to God, and God said, I will deliver you. He put the cloud between the army of Egypt, the greatest army on the world's face at that time, and his people, and he parted the Red Sea, and his people walked across on dry land. By nothing but the sheer, magnificent grace of God, they were set apart to God for his worship. And he crushed their enemy. God crushed them. Is that enough? Nope. They wandered in the desert. They went through the desert. They went to, to the promised land. They got scared of the people in the promised land. And they wanted to go back where? To Egypt. They were short on food. What they want to do? Go back to Egypt. They were short on water. What they want to do? Go back to Egypt. They didn't like each other anymore. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. All they contributed was go back. Go back. We want to go back. They made a, even sculpted a thing to worship and called it Yahweh and said, Let's, it'll lead us back to Egypt where we had fish and plenty. And God wouldn't let it happen because God's intention was to fulfill his word of promise, which was, I will put my people in the land and I will defeat their enemies and they will prosper. Not because of them, because of me. And so what did God do? He sent his hornets and his angels to drive out their enemies before their face and they took the land. When I tell you that the Bible is filled with the story of how God makes his people holy, it's from cover to cover. This is what we've been studying in Romans 6, 1 through 11. So you might be asking a reasonable question at this point. Why do I think and why do I feel and why do I act so unholy if I'm truly a holy person in Christ? That's why Paul wrote Romans 6 12 through 14, not to change the theology, but to further explain the theology. See, God has done the definitive work, and yet the transformation is still to be done. God has said, You will have the land, and now you will work alongside God in the process of conquering the land. We don't go from definitive God doing everything. nothing We go from that to God still transforming us through the power and the presence of His Son. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under Law, but under grace. Today, our passage reveals to us that we are in the middle of a war for our affection, our desire, our obedience, our holiness. We are called to defeat the enemy of lust, which so longs to trap our lives in the clutches of sin and sit on the throne of our life and rule and reign over us. That's the language that Paul uses. We must defeat this enemy. There's no option. We must defeat him day after day after day until we pass through the cold waters of death into that eternal promised land where we will finally rest and the war will be completed. We need to realize that when God definitively acted at the cross to pay the price that was due for our sin in the death of Jesus, he also acted definitively in Jesus Christ to, at that moment, break the power of sin and the, in, in the life of the believer. Break the power of the sin that was there for so long. Break the power of sin and set his people free. Make them holy. God paid the penalty of sin through Christ, which deals with our justification. And he paid for the corruption of our flesh, which is sanctification. And he did it in Christ at the cross. That's what the definitive words of the Bible say. And yet, our experience every single day is in this mortal body, this fleshly body. Every day we're there. And today, our passage wants us to be left with no excuses for keeping on sinning. Because while some of you got angry at definitive sanctification preaching, others of you got happy. You got happy. Because like a fool that goes back, like a dog and eats his vomit, you decided that because it didn't have any hold over you anymore, you just live in it. And for the last few weeks, some of you have gone out and sinned greatly. And what you've said every time you sin, when guilt strikes you or when, when you're confronted with your sin by your conscience, you just tell your conscience, oh, be quiet. <laughs> I'm holy in Christ. I'm free. I can do this. God won't do anything. I'm good. You're just like a kid playing in a mine hole, waiting for it to go off and blow you to pieces. That's what you're doing with the freedom you've been given. And yet, Grace Fellowship, what we hear from the Apostles' Pen today is that we are not to let sin reign in our mortal body, to make it make us obey its passions, its desires. That we are not to let it make us treasure. Sin makes us treasure the things of this world until we can't be parted with the things of this world and therefore we are no good for heaven. And so God declares, you will not see me because only those who are holy shall stand in my presence. Why? Why do we continue to go down this path? Because It's so natural to us because it feels so good to us in the moment. Because we use a hundred excuses. Why must we fight? Because we must not let sin rule over us. We must not let it make our bodies obey its passions. We're being exhorted in this passage. You see it? Let not sin therefore reign. You see that? That's a command. Let not sin reign. We're being exhorted. To experience the holiness that we have in Christ. Experience it every day. Become what we really are. Become what we really are. Be transformed. Paul wants all of us to know that we must not let sin control us and drive us to disobedience of God's already completed work in Christ on our behalf. We are in a war, first thing I want you to see, for holiness that will determine who sits on the throne of our life today. We are in a war that will determine who calls the shots today. We can let sin reign over us today. Even as Christians we can, we, can, we, we can set aside the power given to us in Christ to war against the flesh and against sin and we can just give in to it. But we must not let sin reign over us. If it weren't possible to let sin reign then Paul wouldn't have wrote these words. But it is possible so he wrote them and said don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. The reality is that if you are united to Christ, you have been justified before God. You have also been sanctified by the life of Christ. If we sin today, listen to me. If I sin today, and I have unfortunately sinned already. If I leave here and sin again, then this is what I need to know. It'll be because I choose to sin. I choose it. It will not be because I don't have the power to resist it, to flee it, to kill it. Don't come to God with your excuses. Don't come to God with your excuses of your sin that insinuate that you just don't have the power necessary. That's insulting. To the magnificence of the work of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul says, Christian, let not sin reign in your mortal body. When he says it, he means it. When he says it, he believes it. When he says it, it's a fact that we have the power to not let sin reign. So don't come to God telling him he hasn't done enough to set you free from your sin while all the while you beg to go back to the slavery of the pigsty. Sin is an impostor to the throne of the Christian life. It's an impostor. It's the remnant of the old man that's left in our mortal flesh, and it is a defeated foe, but it is not gone. Sin is not gone. The mortal body still. Feels the law of sin. It still feels it. Oh, the man, the man, the nature, the old nature, it's dead. And it no longer in essence is who we really are. That's why I'm joyful when I proclaim to you this morning that the penalty of sin is canceled in Christ. And the power of sin is broken in Christ. And we have been truly set free from the power of sin. Do you believe that? Obviously, maybe not. It's still present. This sin and it's waging a war against us every day. And Paul says, don't give sin the throne of your life. What does sin want to do? Why does he want to sit? Why does sin want to sit on the throne of your life, Christian? Well, it's simple. Sin wants to make you obey its passions. Sin wants to make you obey its passions. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its sins, passions. This is important that we grasp the truth because it helps us understand how we war against the enemy. The strategy of sin in your life every day is to get you to obey its desire, to get you to obey its passion in your mortal body. Sin's power is broken because the new man is not bound by sin and the yoke of slavery that sin presents. This is true because the old man has been put to death in the death of Jesus Christ. But the new man, currently, this new man resides in a mortal body made of flesh, Sold under the law of sins, it still deals with sin in the mortal body. Sins, power is broken, its yoke of slavery is broken in Christ, and yet we live in a mortal flesh, a mortal body. Both the new man currently resides. The new man resides in this body, which is still carrying around the law of sin. It doesn't say the law of nature. It does not say that the law of your nature is warring against you in Romans 7. Look what it says in Romans 7. Turn over one page, 7, 21 through 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight, notice what he says, in the law of God, in my inner being. In my inner essence, in my inner nature, I I love, I delight in the law of God. Being but in, in I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see that? The man, Paul, as a believer, his mind, his heart, his will was delighting in God's law, God's way, God's righteousness, but in his body there was another law waging war against him he says and that law was the law of sin and death so when i say that the law of sin is real and it is in your mortal body that's exactly what the bible says this is where the war is fought every moment of every day is in our mortal bodies it's fought sin has no power over the new man not really not really But sin wages war against a new man in the flesh. That's what you experience daily, isn't it? You experience this war every day. God has given us good desires, good passions that have been corrupted by sin. In our original state, we had good passions and good desires, but they've been corrupted. So we have to have new desires and a new heart. We have good desires to have enough material wealth to provide for our family with shelter with clothing and earthly security. This is a good desire that we want enough to be able to take care of all of our true needs. What does sin do with that God-given good desire? Oh, it turns it into materialism, greed, and the love of money, so that we turn a blind eye to those in need, and we take more and more and more to our own pleasures and our own self. We have a good desire to have friends and community and enjoy life with them. What does sin do with that desire given by God? Well, it turns it, tries to turn it, the good desire, into a love of the praise of man, which makes us man-pleasers. Or it makes us feel the sting of rejection by the others so deeply that we withdraw from community and we go within ourselves into depression and anxiety and we become antisocial because sin's desire is to rule over you. We have a good desire for intimacy through sex with our spouse. And this is a God-given good desire. And what does sin do? Sin perverts that passion into sinful lust, pornographic filth, fornication, and adultery. Let me tell you something, how dangerous this war is when you don't realize you're in the midst of it. Some of you are right now looking at the filth that's freely available to you through the sewage of this world on the internet. I've been where you were years ago. I've been there. And you're looking at it. And it is changing your mind. It's it's literally changing the way you see the world. And you'll go out and check the mail tomorrow or the next day or sometime in the future if you keep living that way. Even as a Christian, you'll look down the street and there'll be a neighbor, maybe two or three houses down. You'll see her. It's harmless. And you'll wave. And she'll wave back. And your newly wired pornographic mind will say, she likes me. And I like that. And so you'll make sure you check the mail at the same time every day, hoping she's there again. And y'all will play this game of waving until you speak in the street. No, no, that's no sin. No problem, right? Just being friendly. Your wife might see you and you say, oh, she's just from down the street. We're just friends. But one night, you won't be able to sleep. And you'll say, I'll go for a walk. I'll go for a walk. And you'll walk and you'll see her house. And you'll think, I wonder if she's still awake. You'll look and she's still moving. And you'll begin to voyeurily look at her and take her to yourself to feed this desire that sin has perverted. And before you know it, you will be in the clutches, and she will be in the clutches of full-blown sexual sin. Do you think looking at a computer screen doesn't hurt anybody? you think it doesn't matter? It's all harmless. It's better than actually acting on something. Sin has lied to you, and you have willingly believed it. You say, oh, man, that's a stretch. Go read the account of Samuel and see if what I've told you is not exactly what David did when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And you want to know how bad it gets? He murdered her husband to get away with his sin. There is no harmless sin because sin is at war with you to sit on the seat of, of your heart and reign and rule over you and its desire is to utterly and completely destroy you. Let not sin therefore reign. Why? Because it'll kill you. The good desire for sex gets perverted. The good desire for the goods of this world to take care of our needs gets perverted. The good desire for community gets perverted. Sin drives us to all kinds of sins. Like we see the good drink of wine, which was given by God to make glad the heart of his people in celebration. And sin perverts it so that we want excess of it and all the other drugs that are available to our world so that we become addicted and alcoholics. We have a good desire for food, and what does sin do? Sin takes that desire and drives it into gluttony, which causes disease in our bodies and disqualifies our testimony because we have no self-control, and ultimately it will kill us. The reason so many of us do not feel like we are united to Christ in holiness is because we are giving our throne of our life to sin every single day. And it is raining over us. It is raining over us. It is sitting on the seat. And it is thundering out and barking out orders. Sin doesn't create different desires. Sin takes the legitimate God-given desires that you have and uses them as weapons of war against you. That's what Paul says in our text. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its to passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments. That literally means war implements. We are presenting our members, our members to sin like weapons of war to be used against our right. the righteousness that seats inside of us. Sin takes the legitimate things God has given us and perverts them, turns them, twists them back on ourselves. Paul is saying, and I am saying, stop letting sin have the throne of your life. It's not just this passage that tells us that, but 1 Peter 2 Nineteen through 12, nine through twelve says this. Listen to this. But you are chosen, race. You are a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the recap of Romans one, 5, 1 through five right there. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy, beloved. I urge you. As sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's what Peter says. But how do we do it? How do we wage this war? Well, we wage this war by presenting our members to God as weapons of righteousness and not presenting our members as sins, weapons for unrighteousness. The answer to how we do not let sin have the throne of our life is simple, yet one of the hardest battles you could ever fight. Let me give you a visual of this. Let me give you a visual of this. Remember I said the chihuahua is ruling over the German shepherd? When you present your members to God to wage the war against sin in your life, the German shepherd gets up off his back and kills the chihuahua and walks away. Kills it. Paul gives us an imperative, a command, to not present our members to sin as weapons of war for unrighteousness. We have to realize that our body is prone to follow the commands of a chihuahua of sin because it's been with us a long time from the very beginning. But the power of Christ is at work in the Holy Spirit, and we have been united to Christ, which means that the old man, the essence of the old man is dead and gone, and the new man in the new essence is alive. So we must not present our mortal bodies, our members, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, our tongue, our mind, our sexual organs, and on and on. We must not present them to sin, but we must present them to God for righteousness. And that will lead the the chihuahua to be dead because the German shepherd will get up from submitting to it and kill it. By the power of God, kill it. We must present our members to God, not to sin. Why? Because he's, he, God, is waging war against your sin. And he has called you to join him in the battle, just like he did the people of Israel so long ago when they conquered the peoples of the land of Canaan. God did it, and they did it. They did it because God had already done it. The sin that you can kill is the sin that Christ has already killed in his flesh on the tree. And now for you to say, well, I just can't help it, is a mealy-mouthed wimp of an excuse before a holy God who requires holiness from all of his children. It is spitting in the face of Jesus Christ anew and saying, you're not strong enough to beat my sin. You're taunting Jesus When you sin, when I sin, we are taunting Jesus. We are joining with sin and turning the guns of our members on Jesus and saying, You're insufficient. It's your fault. You made me this way. You haven't done enough. Take it away. Instead of taking those guns, those same war implements, and presenting them to God before His holy altar and saying, This I will not look at my neighbor in sin. It will not. Why? Because Christ has redeemed my eyes and they belong to him. And I will not make Christ look at what is unholy. We must present. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. Though sin cannot reign in us, that is in our essential personality, it cannot if left, it can, if left unchecked, reign in our bodies. It will turn the natural instinct of our body into lust. It will turn our natural appetites into indulgence. Our need for clothing and shelter to materialism, our mortal drive for sex, our normal drive for sex into immorality. That's the fight. And you gotta do it every day. Listen, as I get ready to close, I just want to say this. Some of you are losing the war because you're not fighting. Some of you are losing the war because you've decided there's not a real war. Some of you are losing the war because you've said Jesus is not enough, therefore you don't believe the true gospel. Some of you are losing the war because you like the momentary pleasure that your sin gives you while you drink the poison of that sin to your own shame, harm, and death. Those are all the reasons and many more that we see. But listen, every morning your eyes pop open. That is the grace of God, is it not? And his mercies are new every morning, are they not? And so when my eyes open, even as I lay on my bed, I say to God, Oh God, this is your day. You have made it, and I want to be glad in it. So how, God, can I be glad? Well, I'm glad because your son, Jesus Christ, has lived the life I could not live. And he has died the death I deserve to die. And he has been raised from the dead, and I, by your power in your great plan of salvation. I'm raised with him to this new life. And oh God, as I'm going to brush my teeth and take a shower and get dressed, I'm literally saying out loud for myself and anyone else who wants to listen, oh God, please today, please take these eyes that are mine and make them yours. I give them to you. Whatever they see today, let let me see it the way you see it, God. When I see Someone in need, let me see their need and run to rescue them. When I see someone who is living in sin, let me run after them like the shepherd ran after me. When I see a young woman, let me think of her as my sister and that alone. And let my heart, God, be dedicated to my wife, Amy. I've made a covenant with you before her that I will never leave her or forsake her. And don't let me do it this very day, God, by my actions, my words, my thoughts, my eyes, my ears. Do you see what I'm saying? That goes on for close to an hour. Every day. And the days it doesn't, and the days I don't stay there, are filled with filth and sin. Because even though I'm free, I keep wanting to go back to Egypt. What I'm saying is get up off the ground you bunch of German shepherds, by the power of God, and eat the chihuahua for lunch. By the power of Jesus, stop sitting in front of a mealy-mouthed, sinful opportunity and acting like, oh, I just can't help it. That's a lie. Or either the gospel's not true, and if it's not, then we should be pitied more than all. God has promised that it's true. The last verse in our passage. For sin will have No dominion over you. It has no dominion over you. Hear those words. It has no dominion over you. It cannot rule you since you are not under the law but under grace. Grace has set us free. And in the grace of God, we are free to never sin again. And when we sin, we come to him in humble submission of our failure and his strength and beg and plead that he transform us. Let not sin reign. Grace Fellowship, we will never be the church God has intended us to be until our members, myself and all of us, live this way daily. When I sin, it affects every person, man, woman and child in this body. And when you sin, it affects me. And so not only do we have the communion with God that is broken by our obstinance and our sin, but we are killing and inviting in the very thing that will kill our neighbors. And so for the love of Jesus, let this community stand on the grace of God in Christ and say, we will not let sin reign over us. But we will present our members, all of us in our mortal bodies, to God through Jesus Christ and not to sin and unrighteousness because far be it from us to spit into the face of Jesus and tell him he's just not enough. Let's pray. Father, we come and we pray and we plead with you to have your way. And I know this is a hard hard day to hear such hard truth after weeks of hearing such glad tidings of the gospel and those things are so true and they're even sweeter to us when we fight this holy war when we kill the chihuahua of sin when we take the normal passions you've given us and present them in our members to you for holiness and not for unrighteousness now help us to come poor and needy come to experience, to know the greatness of your love. It's in your name we pray, amen. Let's stand and be dismissed in a word of song.